There's a universe inside each of us. The Innerverse Podcast is your portal to that infinite realm of ideas. I'm Chance Garten, and I'll be your host as we serve up inspirational sound waves from the brightest minds with the highest vibes. And we keep searching for the empowering perspectives we need to create our greatest masterpiece of all, our lives. Welcome to the One Within All, back to another Interverse. Good news for you guys. We have returning guest already here for a round two, John Eck from Etherforce. And if you've been following the podcast recently, you must have seen the first time that we talked in a super mega extra long epic episode where we talked about the deep history of John's Etherforce project as it relates to the Borderlands Research Journal. We discussed what actually the ether is. We talked about Walter Russell and the deep fractal heartbeat of the universe that can be seen in everything. And generally, it was just a really radical conversation where we broke down some extremely deep alternative science ideas that support a more spiritual worldview and perspective, as opposed to a totally materialistic one that a lot of science is kind of stuck in. So if you haven't heard that episode, I definitely recommend that you pause this and go check that out. You won't be disappointed. One of the greatest ones we've ever done here. Definitely some of the most original material that you can find on the internet, even though a lot of these suppressed ideas and suppressed technologies are quite a few decades old at this point. And, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. And when it comes to spiritual technology, it's usually simple enough that it could have been around for quite a long time and just unknown, maybe even contributing to some of the things we see in ancient civilizations like architecture that is hard to explain. Great pyramids, for example. So I, I highly recommend you go check out that first episode. Uh, this time around, we're going to be talking about an alternate, alternative perspective on the nature of stars as they relate to the model of the electric universe. All of it's going to tell a story of how stars communicate directly with us as individuals, bridging that gap between spirituality and science once again, and helping us see our place at the very center of our own innerverse, universe, personal cosmos, fractal reality. I'm really excited to have John here. He's also going to be getting into the electric universe more deeply in hour two, along with the science of the basically magic elements of light and color and just what light might actually be and color too, for that matter. So without much further ado, we better go ahead and get into it, but definitely check the show notes for a link to John's website, Etherforce. You can also find the Facebook group and discord server for that particular group of people and get in there. There's a really vibrant community with everything John's put together and these ideas need to be integrated and spread far and wide and done the justice they deserve as things that replace and what are a lot of destructive ideas that have allowed the world and our society to get to the place that it is. So let's go ahead and get things started. John, welcome back to the show, man. Super excited to have you here. Yeah, thanks, Chance. Uh, really, really excited to do uh, round two here. Uh, today is going to be a really quick flow of information. We're going to talk about the nature of electricity, the nature of stars, the nature of light and how that can affect our spiritual being as well. And so it, this lays out a huge new foundation for how we can view the universe and our role in it and the role of celestial bodies in the formation of most physical processes as well. So this is a pretty broad topic and it's going to be light and fast. So kind of buckle up guys. 
So I'm locked um, and loaded. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Got my kombucha. So, let's do this. All right. So every talk I give, there's a main point that needs to be, uh, be expressed. And that's the idea of polarity balanced by a neutral fulcrum in a sense, or a neutral center. And that phys- physicality ex- itself is an expression of polarity. It's an expression of the metamorphic, pulsating, rhythmic, balanced interchange of a- expansive and contractive states of decentration and concentration. And this model, this universal breath, this universal heartbeat is an archetype that can be found in some of the most advanced esoteric sciences that we can find today. Um, so we're going to start briefly with Johann, Johann Wolfgang Goethe. Um, he, w- he lived a little after uh, Newton's time, but he, was the, he gave an archetypal view of how to approach the scientific method. Completely different than Newton's perspective. Even, even though Newton was an alchemist himself, Goethe uh, uh, completely abhorred um, Newton's Roy G. Biv spectrum and all that. And we're going to get into the color spectrum much later. But the reason I'm bringing Goethe up is that his archetypal top-down way of viewing nature and going about the scientific method, it integrated this breath of life, this pulsation of expansion and contraction. And he found that to be the basis of how he would model plant morphology and be able to trace the metamorphic states between different stages of life and death, uh, uh, of growth and decay of, of plants, basically. And, but he also found this archetype inherent in his optical spectrum as well. So this relates a lot to what we covered with Walter Russell's ideas last time. It's like, exactly. it's, a, it's almost like a prequel <laughs> in a way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so uh, I'm actually going to give Walter Russell a summary in like two paragraphs, maybe. And then, but um, yeah, so the idea of between this contraction and expansion, the, the the pulse between them, that tension that's created between them, that's what we know is physicality. In essence, that's what electricity is. And electricity is the prime uh, material manifestation uh, that, that we can observe, basically. But it's the tension between polarities is the driver uh, behind what we, what we know as the physical universe. Um, so Walter Russell, in a paragraph, basically, is describing how a cubic at lattice, um, a system of cubes act as a, a system of mirrors of zero, zero curvature that bound the rhythmic balance interchange of polarized sex conditioned pr- spherical pressure zones, spherical pressure conditions, whose intersections are actually a system of lenses, of concave and convex lenses that are either rarefracting or compressing the universal medium, what that uh, Walter Russell called the magnetic still light, what I call ether. But this refracting and compressing of the universal medium just creates different angles, different phases of this universal medium into nine different octaves of elements of seemingly motion. Um, Centripetal and centrifugal vortex dynamics describe how these spheres can overlap and and intersect and uh, basically interfere with each other, whether constructively or deconstructively. Uh, This is the science of cubing the sphere. It's literally modeling how a cube becomes an incandescent sphere like carbon in his model, a sun, how something that is nothing, a plane of of, uh, infinite projective geometry, it's counter space basically, it's like less than nothing. And we'll get into that, how that becomes a vibration 
through as a series of concentric rings known as the inert gases and how those go through a system of prolation and oblation to become a toroid donut, to become a sphere, to become a toroid donut, and to become a system of rings, and then to become the cube again. It's literally a system of the cube becoming a sphere. It's al alchemy, basically. And that transi transition from cube to sphere happens in very harm harmonic phases. And those harmonic phases encapsulate all forms of crystallization, all forms of known matter, basically. So Walter Russell also, it, 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 his model was based off of a universal medium that balances two polarities. The, the interchange between the two polarities is what he called electricity. To him, matter is this compressed magnetic still light and space is just the vacuous expanded state of that. Matter and space are one and the same thing, or just different expressions of it, basically. And we'll get into different versions of this, like being dielectric field and the magnetic field, basically. Uh, so to Walter Russell, stars were these entities. Don't, I'm sorry, that was probably like not the correct term, but these physical bodies that are compressing and sucking in through centripetal motion, the vacuum, the coldness of space, the cold nebulous space gases I talked about in the previous talk, those 21 pre-hydrogen space gases. The sun is literally siphoning those and sucking them in through the poles, then radiating them out equatorially, which will become the prima materia that forms physical matter and planets that are shot off as equator, basically. Um, so he had a whole different system of thermodynamics as well. So I'm just going to read his like six laws real quick. He had more than that, but this kind of sums it up. But cold generates energy. Heat radiates energy. Cold multiplies. It cannot be divided. Heat divides. It cannot be multiplied. The second law, every reaction must be preceded by its equal action. Heat is the reaction of cold. Heat could not come into existence save for the compressive action of cold. The third law, cold and heat express their opposition at angles of 90 degrees from each other. Cold extends along this axis and the axis of all bodies of creating matter where rotation is the minimum, while the heat expansion is maximum at, equ at equatorial planes where the speed of motion is the maximum. His fourth of the six laws, cold compresses. Compression multiplies cold into heat. Heat expands. Expansion divides heat into cold. Cold and heat, like life and death, constitute a wave cycle. In all nature, there is no effect which is not, wait, not wave created, and all waves are cyclic. The fifth law, when motion begins, heat begins. The entire universe is a varied measure of the heat of motion. This entire wave universe is a varied measure of heat and motion. Long, low waves of low heat potential constitute the invisible light spectrum, while short, high waves of while short high waves of high potential and low frequencies constitute the visible spectrum. And the last one, the emergence of heating matter and motion from the static cold of space begins at the indigo blue and blue violet ends of the spectrum and builds up to the centered yellow through red and green until the maximum heat equatorial plane is reactive at an angle of 90 degrees from the static axis of cold. So to him, the compression of electric fields of potential at the anode or basically the corners of the cube and the expansion of, the, of those same fields at the cathodes or the planes of the cube is the reason every part of the universe has a measure of polarity. And that polarity, 
Go ahead. Sorry, the planes of the cube. You mean is that like the surfaces, like the faces? Yeah, the, yeah, exactly. So the, there's nine total faces within the cube: six on the exterior and three equatorial, like X, Y, Z axis that go all the way through. Um, and so that polarity distribution is responsible for the curvature of space, optical lensing, and all spiral motion. So the reason I'm bringing this up is his whole model is just a uh, a big metaphor for the breath of life and how hot becomes cold and cold becomes hot and how that is the driver for all motion. And so we could describe those interactions with vortex motion, with mapping out spherical pressure gradients and seeing how those interact. Um, there's a bunch of different ways to think about this. But so in, in essence, to him, a star is this, this body that has this massive suctional force and then radiates it out equatorial, equatorially. That's, that's the main point I want to get across right here, right now. So Walter Russell, you know, like in the last talk, he was Nikola Tesla's confidant, um, was an artist in training and received all these spiritual visions and brought, brought it into art and then turned it into a science. He had no scientific training, but was able to come up with these highly advanced ideas in very uh, in a, a very il illustrative way of what magnetism is, of what electricity is, of what light is, and so to him, optical light is the interaction of polarities. It's the 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 bouncing or collapsing of of bubbles of little of collapsing sound bubbles, basically. And we can get into that in a little bit. That's so, really interesting, just because the spiritual traditions of the world will say that like the word or the logos is where things emerge from. And you're basically making a case using Russell's ideas that the sound is the origin of light. And that's a, that's very, very interesting. And I don't know if you're planning on doing this, but it might also be good to break down those six laws that you went through in a more, or not break down, but maybe expand or summarize in a, um, <laughs> more yeah, yeah, terminology. Yeah, I just wanted to get those out there. Yeah, basically, it's cold compresses, and when any state, um, whether it's expansive or contractive, once it reaches a maximum, it has nowhere else to go but to become its opposite. Okay, so as cold, the coldness of space is coalesced. It, it starts to heat as it goes through vortex motion. And it's centripetally wound into the center of a sun. It's the cold is being compressed into heat. But once that heat reaches a maximum point, it's, it has the only desire to become its opposite. So it wants to become radiate out, out as heat. And then that heat wants to become the cold vacuum of space again. So, so yeah, the radiating of the heat is it sort of dissipating. And that's where the idea of entropy is coming from. Uh, exactly. And to go back to the breath as the primary metaphor or rep, like, you know, for the entire fractal, it's that you fill up your lungs and then you exhale your lungs. And it's just this, as Walter Russell calls it, balanced rhythmic interchange. And that's where all of this is arising out of. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So yeah, it's just, it's two polarities that desire to become each other. And as they try to become each other through a still neutral point, they record each other's actions, they void each other, and then they repeat the actions. And so there's this little dance going on continually to become one's opposite, but never truly becoming it in totality. Because if you were to do that, 
you'd become completely void and you would be the fulcrum itself. So physicality necessitates some kind of polarity. Otherwise, you're just the fulcrum and you're still this. That makes sense? That's very interesting because like meditation, for example, to really reach uh, states of, I don't know, you call it transcendence or where you're no longer super identified in the body and you can get into extremely mental planes that are almost dreamlike and infinite and expansive. The way to do that is to balance your breathing in a rhythmic way. And so it's like the material world that we're existing in for it to even work. It is this interchange, but it requires some level of imbalance. That's what you mean by polarity. It's not exactly a perfect um, one my plus one minus zero thing where it's yeah. equaling zero. But when you meditate, it's like you're almost simulating that equilibrium as a way to turn down the noise, like literally on the material world and, and to go into a more spiritual plane. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that, that just kind of made me think of what the golden ratio is. Like if physicality were complete one-to-one ratio of polarities, like we wouldn't exist, but the golden ratio is this, you know, this special little ratio that allows for the most efficient interaction between polarities or sex conditions or whatever you want to call it. I call it God's lube. Like it allows for this kind of frictionless uh, interaction between male and female archetypes, basically. Um, It allows for this perfect flow of information to occur where it maintains integrity as it flows from scale to scale. So So you're referring to how in the golden ratio, this is a mathematical transcendental type number, but in nature, the golden ratio doesn't ever exist mm-hmm. exactly. It's approximated by phi. The uh, yeah, it might be yeah. good to give that a little more of a, like explain, if we could talk about that a little more, yeah, I think yeah. that's a good point to make because it's like nature is constantly approximating perfection and getting closer and closer, but it's a never ending transcendental <clears throat> never ending transcendental number. So it gets closer and closer to something, but it's never actually quite getting there. So it's like mm-hmm. infinite expansion is built into the material world. Do you have anything to like riff on that? Um, I don't know about the infinite expansion part, but the idea of. Well, maybe not go- infinite expansion, but like a continual progression, like that uh, yeah, the material yeah. universe so, goes on indefinitely. Mm-hmm. So I, I mean, I, I think of things as a fractal, but the golden ratio is approximated by the Fibonacci sequence, like you said. So like you can take the numbers of the Fibonacci sequence and start adding them and then finding their ratios. And, um, but you'll never hit 1.618, blah, 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 blah. And you'll never be able to hit that number because it's an irrational number. Um, but no matter what you measure, you're never going to find the perfect 1.618. Um, yeah, I don't know exactly where you want me to go. No, yeah, but that's just, that's trippy, man. That's that's about what I wanted to point out is just that like, that, that transcendental number is built into the universe, but it's approximated by the material world. And there's other examples. It, it represents kind of, like a path of least resistance for things too. Yeah, and like uh, objects grow, like plants will develop their leaves in the Fibonacci sequence. And mm-hmm. uh, even that, even that golden ratio spiral is 
built into like the design of the human face, for example. It's it's everywhere. That's something people could, if they're not already familiar with, if they would just want to understand the, the magic and beauty of what this ne- this universe really is and how math is a part of it, that's a big way to do it. And I also have like a, a funky thing to throw out there. Another irrational number is pi. And that's the one that most people are familiar with. Not everyone maybe is familiar with the golden ratio, but I found out the other day that in gematria, which is where you just replace a, the letters of the alphabet with a number, the phrase, well, let me back up a little bit. The, the closest approximation to pi that's the simplest is uh, 22 divided by seven. And that gets you 3.14. It's not the exact same as what pi would be if you're calculating it from a circle, but it's close, kind of like what you're talking about with Fibonacci versus um, golden mean ratio. But if you put the phrase 22 divided by seven, written out in words into gematria and you just turn each of those letters into the appropriate number based on what number of the alphabet it is, what, what order it comes in, that actually adds up to three, one, four, 22 divided by seven. Super weird. <laughs> yeah. I just wanted to throw that out there. Gotcha. Um, okay. Um, let's see. Sorry to derail you. <laughs> no, 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 you're totally cool. And I just had another side stream, but I, I like that, that will take up too much time. So, um, so yeah, now, you got a mission. <laughs> yeah, I'm on a mission today, guys. So next, I want to mention Rudolf Steiner's take on stars. So Steiner, um, he was a de- he used to be a theosophist. He defuncted from the theosophy school because he knew how screwed up they were. Started his own thing called Anthroposophy, but his whole system is teaching mankind how to catalyze and um, experience reality through a whole new system of organs, of sensory organs that you can develop with honing in on your imaginative skills and um, by developing your threefold nature of thinking, willing, and feeling. And he has a whole system of formative forces and these things called ethers that tie in with elements and physical forces, but I'm not going to get into all that today. I just want to give his perspective of what the sun is. So, in short, Steiner says the sun, if we were to go there physically, that we would be absolutely surprised because we technically wouldn't see anything. It's, he says it's less than nothing. It's etheric space. It's something known as counter space. And I'm going to get, and this will lead to a conversation about the nonsense of black holes and how we can view like dark matter and things and like why there's a whole bunch of things that we just can't see. But he literally said that, that the sun is this, this body that is less than nothing, made of sun space, etheric space, counter space, and it has this massive suctional force, just like Walter Russell describes. But he also says that the sun is not its own luminous body, that it is a prism. He doesn't use the word prism, but that his job is to actually reflect the light of the planets back to the cosmos. And so this is completely counterintuitive to what you could ever think about the star, about stars and the sun. You think that's a nuclear furnace just blasting out these, all this heat and this light. And you know, that's kind of the end of the story, but he's saying that the sun is just a reflector for the cosmos. It is not the primary light. That is a prism that refracts light into usable spectrums for humanity, basically. Um, but it's really interesting because I'm going to get into in the near future about the ways that like we can point out 
actual lies and and uh, deception from NASA and from images we get of space and like the the mainstream scientific materialism model of what stars and space are. So it's cool yeah, that you're we'll saying this because. That. I think someone I'm going to have on in the future has got stuff to say about what you're talking about, about the star or the sun not being its own light source, so to speak. So it's really, he's even got some video evidence of, yeah. of filming things that kind of demonstrate that, but this is really interesting. So interesting. I just wanted to say like, you're right in line with stuff I've been looking at from different avenues and it's kind of cool how it's syncing up. Gotcha. Very, very cool. Yeah. So basically he's saying the sun is just this massive suctional force but you can't see it. It doesn't exist in our optical realm. It, it's some, he, he doesn't call it nothing. He says it's less than nothing. It's like the inverse of something. It, but that's still something, right? You know, because it's not nothing. So it, it's this polar to space and it's known as counter space. And there's this whole other realm of science that involves projective geometry that allows you to model metamorphic states like Guta talked about the transition between different states and, and the forms that is, are associated with that. Um, so he, Steiner is adamant about saying that the, star, the sun is not this giant ball of burning gas, that we can feel these hot emitting rays from the corona, but that's not what the sun is. That's an effect of what's going on in the sun. And he says, oh, oh, this is trippy. So he says, and so Steiner is about your own, achieving your own personal first-hand perception of the cosmos. And he says that man himself will never be able to, basically whatever we see in the cosmos is something that is mirrored in man. We will never see anything in the cosmos that is not within our own inner verse. If you, if you know, to put it bluntly, but um, so this space of the sun is this negative counter space and he says to experience that, you need to have a doorway to negative space. Just like you have to have a door to a house. You can't just walk through a wall. There has to be a gateway through this negative space. And he says, our physicality, of course, we're going to fry up if we try to go through the rays of the chromosphere. Like that's where all the fusion and hot temperatures are going. And I'm going to get into this later. Like the core of the sun and the surface of the sun, they're way cooler than the chromosphere. It, uh, it just it, it's a reverse process of what we think is actually going on. But he says to get through these negative spaces to enter the counter space of the sun, that we have to basically learn how to engage the spiritual beings of the sun. And that when we do that, we form this geometric relationship, which is the model of the human heart. Like, uh, let, let me read this. So now when you go there, go through there again, you have a definite spiritual experience, which you're able to elaborate and work upon. And as you do it, do so, it becomes the form of the human heart. Not only is the form of the eye made of the sun and the moon, the heart form too is fashioned from the sun. So he's saying that there's a, a primal geometry that's in the center of the sun that we can access by going through the center of ourselves, basically. So we can no, that makes total sense, man. It's like that's the you're opening a different doorway of perception, and the the heart even has neurons in it. It is it is like a thinking organ, as are all the organs actually. But that's a whole other topic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, big time. But um, this statement right here about the geometry of a heart, the geometry of the sun. I mean, even Newton kind of alluded to this in his alchemical work 
one of Newton's biggest drives was to find a geometry of the planets that resonated with the geometry of the organs, which related to the, the Western view of the chakras, basically. Like he was trying to find this geometric relationship, the shape power bridge between planets and the human body. And so Steiner saying there's a, there's a clear geometric relationship, not only between the eyes with the, with the moon and the sun, but the heart as well. And so he created in his Gutianum, like basically his form of a temple for that in honor of Guta. I talked about this last time. He has these planetary and zodiac zodiac seals. They look like cymoglyphs, like cymatic patterns. They look identical to that. And so, He's getting and cymatic patterns are sound wave patterns, just for anyone that doesn't yeah. know that phrase. It, I, I forget sometimes not everyone knows like all the jargon. And so I got to throw in those little yeah, tidbits. But if you've ever seen like uh, sand on a vibrating plate and how it forms into geometric patterns or how even water fr- freezes based on like vibrational patterns and, and sounds of uh, words and things that are around it when that's happening. There's a bunch to that. I think most people are familiar with the Emoto experiments that Mm. really made the rounds, but that's essentially what we're talking about with cymatics. And that's where this geometry is arising from. As you said early on, the, the things are, the light comes out of the the sound wave essentially. Mm. Yeah. um, I'm actually going to pull up images of cymatics real quick and screen share that. And then I'm going to go to Steiner's little glyphs real quick, just so people can have a better idea. Rad, rad. People just listening on the audio, if you want to see these images, all you got to do is hop onto the YouTube version of this episode. So all these are cymatic patterns. And so cymatics has blown up in its popularity in the past two years. And there's people doing all kinds of stuff. There's people making 3D bubbles that are undulating. People doing very, very beautiful work. Um, Yeah, you can see one of the bubble images here. This guy's amazing. It creates like living holographic images in it. But cymatics basically is observing the effect of vibration on matter. And so if you have the same vessel, the same frequencies or harmonics, the same media, water, sand, or whatever, if all the conditions are met exactly the same and you run the same frequencies, you're going to get a repeatable pattern. Change any of those parameters, the, 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 the cymatic patterns will not be the same. Cymatics is like a universal thing. And another conversation we can have is about language, but dolphins themselves use cymatics. Dolphins are able to be like, they can aim their uh, sonar beams that they communicate with. And the, that beam will actually, it will actually read the shape of whatever they're observing. And that will be embedded on that cymatic way, basically. So you can basically take, the sound of a dolphin running through a cymatics machine, a cymatic viewer, a very specific type of cymatic viewer, and you'll actually see the object they're reviewing. It's very blunt, but like they have pictures of dolphins moving cubes and circles, and they even have a picture of a, of a, a dolphin observing a human being. You can see human form embedded in the electrical signal, basically, or the sound waves embedded from dolphins it's freaking wild so man but, that is why in hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy the dolphins were like an advanced species to, and way beyond humans <laughs> yeah and man, so it's crazy and so we can talk about cymatics forever but i mean it's understanding how form 
comes to being from some kind of electromagnetic or some kind of field modality. Like there's something like vibrating things into dissonance and in harmony, like a standing wave pattern. And that's what biology is. So Steiner. See here. Man, what you just said is so deep and significant though. Like people should think about that. <laughs> that's a big one. So here's Steiner's planetary seals, you know, kind of look like Simon glyphs, right? I wonder how he derived these, if it had to do with the orbital patterns of these planets or what, yeah, because I know uh, Venus I, has a five pointed or a f like sort of five mm -hmm. uh encoded into the geometry of how it orbits pentagonal, I guess you'd say. Yeah. That's a whole study, man. Like I have tons of books that are go straight into the geometric relationship of orbital patterns and how that relates to metamorphic states of plant morphology. Plants are these antennae, the shape based interfaces for the qualitative information that's embedded in the geometric relationships of orbital patterns, basically. They're here to ground celestial signals into the earth. I like the way Thomas Joseph Brown states it, that there's one vegetative, there's one plant on the earth, and that's the vegetative surface, that every plant, every flower, every blade of grass are individual anodes that are receiving these celestial, these celestial signals. And I'm actually going to hit that from the electric universe perspective later on as well. When we start talking about Birkeland currents and the newly found Doherty set, and like there's a whole new vortex geometry way beyond Walter Russell that ties all of this stuff together. It's pretty incredible. And that really gives you a view of the earth as an organism, a singular organism, in a, which is a much hard, better way to look at it than as just this uh, dead hunk of rock flying through space that's a speck in an infinite void with no meaning. <laughs> exactly. So I just brought up the zodiacal seals. So there's more of these. And so Steiner, the, 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 the zodiac represents the consonants in language and the, and the, um, and the planetary bodies represent the vowels. And so he had a whole system of body movement called Eurythmic that basically teaches you to harness the signals of the stars through your body movements. And every body movement represents different letters, basically. So you're, using, you're, you're dancing letters to tune yourself into the cosmos. And then, um, so those cymoglyphs, if the zodiacal and planetary seals, those were actually on the on the pillars of this of this beautiful building called the Gutiana. Man, the Eurythmy thing is super interesting in context with last week's episode, which was pretty much all about gematria and mm -hmm. how that works as a sort of a sympathetic magic and really relates to the shape power idea that we got into last time and uh, the fact that really everything is language in the cosmos. And that's one of the things that these studies will reveal to you. It's just a, a bunch of different languages, but what is expressed is the same thing, similar to how I might say a sentence in French, or I might say it in English, but we, we can say the same things in different ways. Yeah, precisely. But geometry just seems to be the key that ties it all together. 
And, um, so these yeah. are, these are pictures. Um, I forgot what book I got these from, but, um, it's not Steiner, but these are, you know, different representations of some of the geometric patterns between different planetary bodies. So this gives you an idea is like, there's some kind of antenna put in place where things rotate around each other. And that creates this rhythmic pulsating between that and what other, what basically anything else that has that geometry. Um, yeah, so I think, let's see, that's all I've got to say about Steiner. Oh, wait, wait, um, I, I want to do this quote real quick. Um, so, all right, this, this is Steiner, when you hear everything he says, like, it takes a moment for things to register. So, the nearer we, we approach an earthly life, the more does this universe, which is man, contract for us. Majestic it is indeed, notably in the middle period between death and a new birth. But now we grow increasingly aware of how this universe, with all its erstwhile majesty and greatness, is shrinking and contracting. The planets which bear within us, planets in their weaving mo movement, become what then pulsate and surge through the human ether body. The fixed stars of the zodiac become what forms our life of nerves and senses, all this is shrinking to become a body, spiritual to begin with, and then ethereal. And not until it has grown quite tiny is it received into the mother's womb, there to be clothed with earthly matter. The, the big point I'm trying to get with this whole talk is that there is something about the positioning and the movement of stars, of planetary bodies, that guides how physical processes occur how morphology occurs, literally what we consider physicality is signals from the stars weaving around each other, being kind of like spiraled into these little antennas we call these meat suits. And yeah, they basically like to zoom in on that, he says the universe, which is man. So it's like this concept of man is created in the image of God, that spiritual idea. But like we really, the universe really is the bigger template that our smaller bodies are designed on and there's no there's just no there's no way to overstate the significance of that realization once you have that realization that uh, that's what all the ancient mystery schools were teaching and encoding know thyself and you will know the secrets of the gods and the universe or whatever that that uh, classic statement is mm -hmm. it's super super real <laughs> and geometry yeah. is definitely a big key to that this is cool big time man big time all right, so, okay, I think that's enough for Steiner. Okay, I want to touch on this very strange fellow almost no one's heard of. His name is Pierre Luigi Igina, okay? Out of all the weird people I've mentioned, like, he's like Marcel Vogel meets Tesla meets radionics people. Like, he's just like this man of everything, but um, he was an Italian. But he viewed he what he time period? Um, that's a good question. I know he had videos up through the early nineties. So okay, I mean, yeah. Um, I relatively mean, modern then. Yeah, yeah, relatively modern. Um, so he says light is a type of energy that is spiraling from the sun and is absorbed and reflected into the matter in the earth, and but the earth then sends that back to the sun, and that there's this eternal harmonic heartbeat. 
that is the cause of all the living vital processes on the planet. And he says, there is actually a small inner sun made of plasma within the earth that basically rings like a tuning fork with the sun. And they beat like a heart in unison, basically. And this man, he called that the magnetic rhythm. And so he developed all these radical technologies that utilize this magnetic rhythm in one way or another. So one of the... It's like the circulation. I'll just like to to make another metaphor comparison. It's like the circulation in your body. Like when I ever have a bad headache, for example, I can feel a pulse in my head when my heart beats, I feel it. And normally you're not really paying attention to that. But I think what you're saying here, what this idea is reflecting is that even on the macro scale, there's that interconnectedness of current and pulsation and rhythm that it's all in sync as Mm -hmm. one body. Yeah, big time. And so everything I'm talking about for this part is like an archetypal view of what the electrical universe has the possibility of explaining. Um, so Egina, man, this man was so far out here. So he had all these like shape power devices. Let me let me bring him up. Um, screen share. Yeah, screen share. Do, do, do. This is my first time hearing of this guy. Yeah, I've only seen, I've only heard Jason Verbelli talk about him, and I'm friends with a guy who has translated a lot of his works. Or actually, no, most of his stuff's available in Italian, and then you have to translate it. But dude, that language barrier is so brutal, though. So, oh man, if I could speak Russian and German, man. Whoo. Yeah, get on that. Yeah, yeah, learn a bunch of languages and then translate that work. I'll I'll wait for you. I'll be ready to record with you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So here's Egina, okay? So down here, you can see kind of a, that's kind of what he's talking about. There's these two spiraling emanations, one from the sun and one from the earth, and they counter rotate around each other. So there's another picture of that behind him. Like super old dude, okay? (laughs) Reminds me of Russell just in the like the artistic level of the way he's depicting a scientific idea. Basically, yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, he, so he developed shape power devices like that can mitigate earthquakes by reinstating this uh, terrestrial celestial magnetic rhythm. He was able to enhance plant growth. He was able to create monopoles. Here's his UFO. He actually... So what's a monopole? It, um, most magnets are supposed to be, you know, north pole, Di- south pole. Dipolar, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so it's kind of like this, uh, like, hidden thing that no one's supposed to have discovered, but a couple of people have, including Philip Callahan. That's a whole other conversation. Um, <clears throat> here's a device called the uh, Arum, E-R-I-M, but that's basically a small apparatus that concentrates and develops the magnetic rhythm of the solar earth energy to regenerate cells and return them to normal functioning. It's like simple things like this. He was able to do amazing things. Uh, Almost seems like it's related to the orgone work. Yeah. There's something. Yeah. It's something about this shape power stuff is the ethers, orgones, something. And so he had this, this device, this is like a lenticular microscope. He had, he was able to zoom into things about 1.6 billion times, like freaking incredible. And he observed what he called magnetic atoms, 
under the observation of this microscope. And that certain of these atoms had a very large envelope, spherical envelope of light around them. And that if you place one of these light atoms around an atom that had less light around it, that the one with less light would entrain to the one with more light, basically. That you could literally change the rate of vibration of particulate matter to something else by putting it in the presence of something that's vibrating in a higher space, basically. I mean, it's, it's like when that guy comes into a shitty party and everyone's like, hey, and all of a sudden it's like really awesome because he showed up or she <laughs> could be she. Yeah, but it is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, let's see. So, yeah, you can either speed up or slow down the rate of motion of atoms. And then he found out that he could basically transmute matter with this and, and had strange chemical reactions. One of, the, one of his experiments was he was able to change the rate of a vibration of, I believe, an apple tree. And within 16 days, turn that apple tree into a peach tree. He was able to grow a rat's tail on a rabbit or something like that. He was able to do like literally tr like a heal, uh, he healed a bone on a rabbit too. Literally able to change the rate of vibration. So it became something else. Um, That's definitely far out. Yeah. It, but th the reason I really like this guy, um, he, he developed like an encyclopedia and like, there's like all of his stuff's in Italian. So, I mean, who knows, but he was supposed to have developed an encyclopedia, just like those radionic rapes I had talked about uh, in the last episode. Basically, he cataloged the rates of vibration of a whole bunch of different materials, basically. And it just sounds identical to someone mapping out the radionic rates for something and then using that to alter something physical. It, it, it sounded like radionics without radionics. It makes me wonder if this type of technology could account for certain forms of the biology on this planet that seem mysterious as to how they came about. Cause like, I mean, you know, don't crucify me for this, but I, not you, but listeners, uh, I'm not really sold on the Darwinian view of evolution being the only way that things ever develop or change. I mean, there's some level of evolution, but what I'm suggesting here is like maybe an ancient civilization was able to use this type of vibratory knowledge or frequency knowledge to say, for example, create the domestic cat. Cause when you look at the domestic cat and you look at something like a lion, there's a lot of weird differences. Like the, the eyes and the fangs of the cat almost look like it could be part snake or something. And who knows, there could have been this hybridization and cross create like mixing of different, I won't say DNA, but for lack of metaphor, a better metaphor, like, you know, mixing their genes, but on a frequency level and, you know, not requiring the avenues of technology, like what they're trying to do now with stuff like CRISPR, maybe a much more efficient and harmonious way of experimenting with biology. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I mean, I think a future talk we'll have is like basically electrobiology and the role of frequency on health and, and things like that. And I think that will tie in beautifully with that. Um, let's see. He also, he had this principle to where these magnetic atoms, these highly luminous atoms, they would have tunnels that would radiate out, radiate out from them. And that those would be able to connect to other antennas and somehow, or uh, to other atoms. And it, like this subtle tunnels of communication were created between 
two different vibratory states. So I, I found that kind of pretty interesting. Um, well, that just reflects like n- blood vessels or the nervous system or something like this interconnection on a, the smaller scale. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And um, let's see, he, he also built a telescope that based off these same principles. And he said he saw mountains, vegetation, fauna, and even human-like entities on the moon. Like straight up. <laughs> that, that is uh, bizarre. Yeah, and he also had a, uh, just like Reich with his cloud busters, he had a, a similar uh, like weather manipulation technology. Um, I don't think I have a picture on it of it here. Um, but so with his weather manipulation technology, he, there was a racetrack like in, in his town in Italy. And I guess to like for some reason, he had kind of a feud with some of the higher ups that had a whole lot of money involved in, in the racetrack. So he would just make it rain on days they had big races and like just make them lose tons of money. Like he was able to make it rain like when he wanted. <laughs> but uh, let's see, he also, there was one other thing. Oh yeah, but just like Reich with, with these weather engineering devices, he had a UFO experience basically. And when the ship actually crossed the beam that his device was emitting, he actually saw like the internal workings of the engine. That's so, interesting, like x-ray. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, in terms of vibrating atoms, and I'm using the term atom very loosely here when I'm using talking about his stuff, but he says if the atom that you're, so if you're working with this changing of vibratory states of things, if the atom starts this pulsa- pulsation by contracting, it's going to have negatively, like biologically antagonistic properties. But if the pulsation is starting by expanding, it's going to have positive properties. So he theorized that if, oh, okay. Yeah, so that, that, that's about it for that. But uh, yeah, he's just kind of this wild card character in history. It's just like, he did so much, but it relates to, you know, Trevor James Constable, Wilhelm Reich, even Steiner's work, like the shape power stuff. And it's just like, what is going on? Like, even though we can't explain what's going on, it's, it's just mind blowing what he claimed to be able to do. Yeah, I'll have to look into this guy more. I mean, I can't make I can't make up my mind if he was a, a super genius or a mad scientist, but <laughs> yeah, probably something super, in super villain, superhero. I don't know, but <laughs> it's it's really interesting. There's some weird devices here, and the shape power stuff. I mean, how that's working is coming to a full understanding of the mechanical nature of how that actually works may be something that we never can quite do. Maybe it is because what shapes are, symbolically speaking, they are just an idea that is then represented by the physical form that you create out of that shape. And that the idea itself exists in the spiritual realm. And that's where the power that it has to influence the material is emanating from. And that's like why shapes have an effect. And maybe we're not ever going to find like a, a mechanistic connection there or, you know, be able to draw that perfectly. Maybe it's just something that that's just the way it is, but maybe yeah. we will find it. I don't know. Yeah. We can definitely I, find functionality ways to make it work for us. Yeah. Um, I mean, this kind of goes into the conversation of what uh, moral technology is. And I mean, I, I think in the future, there's going to be more and more individuals who are able to, 
experience things through their higher cognitive functioning, higher imaginative realm, and actually feel these formative forces and actually ground that into technology. And I'm I'm actually going to talk about this man for a second, John Keeley. Have you ever heard of him? I just heard the name, but I don't really know a lot of what he's about. But I really love what you were just saying before you brought him up. And if I'm not mistaken, people can find exercises by Steiner, who you started out talking about, that will help them develop those capacities, mm-hmm. right? I've, I've actually tried some of the visualization, imagination exercises as taught by Steiner. And I think it is really crucial, even if the reason that you want to do it isn't scientific, maybe it's artistic reasons, mm-hmm. creativity reasons. It's that that imagination thing is like a, a perceptual skill or it's like a muscle that you can train. And I think that he, we should. He, he literally calls it an, an organ of perception. Like we literally have these new organs that are very dormant within us right now. Yeah. And imagination like, is literally you're perceiving something. It's not like you're, it's not real. It's not like you're making it up. It is like a second sight in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm totally with you on that. Yeah. Um, Steiner, he gave what he calls the six basic exercises. And some of them are very simple. Like one could be like a daily reminder to, to do something random and simple, like, like looking at a rubber band for like two minutes at the same time every day. Um, a lot of what Steiner was trying to bring about is like, yeah, sit down in the stillness and, you know, observe things and see how they reflect your soul's impression or how learning how to feel within your soul body, within yourself, how physical phenomena affect you. Not just saying, hey, I'm looking at this color, but saying, oh, this color makes me go this way or that way or something like that, or makes me feel a different way. He's that about, makes sense. It, it's a science of bring. He's trying to bring feeling into science. And this, don't, please do not misconstrue this for liberal bullshit that's going on right now. Like, <laughs> Uh, this is a higher sense of which you can learn how things literally impress upon your soul, how it shifts your cognition. That's right. The, the uh, perceptual organ that is imagination. Another way of putting it is like spirit is always there. This inf- this underlying information that is always available. It's always there. You're always perceiving it. It's just the quality of your attention or how, how well you're paying attention to it. Like it's really about getting out of distraction and getting out of ignorance. That's why the stillness and the slowing down is a big component of it. And mm-hmm. it makes sense. You just look at a rubber band for two minutes, you're training your ability to pay attention and stay focused on something and, and um, doing that enough. It's kind of like any other thing like yoga or Qigong doing it repeatedly. It might feel the same every day, but then one day all of a sudden you feel an internal energy shift or an internal energy flow in some way that you've never felt before. And now you have a, unlocked a higher degree of sensitivity. And I mm-hmm. think that that's really what the emotional plague as Reich would describe it is a really a, a desensitization, a lack of, we, we in fact rejected our birthright as humans to be able to feel everything around us inside of us. And yeah. that's like the path to going home is to redevelop that. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, I started Gurdjieff for a little bit and he discovered like the fourth way. And it basically is telling you like we're, we're automatons most of the time. And most of us through every one of our actions have very little conscious awareness. He gave an example. How many times every time you open the door you walk out of the most, how many times you go out that door, can you take a second to actually 
bring your awareness to your action at that moment and be like, hey, I'm opening the store handle and bring awareness to what you're actually doing. Most of us can't do that whatsoever or on a very, very limited basis. So these spiritual practices aren't necessarily about zenning out the whole time. It's about bringing your awareness to your daily moments. Um, but Steiner was about bringing ritual to the daily daily life, making anything into a ritualistic form. And the way I view a ritual is like, that's a geometric ordering of your space, of your activity. Like you're creating some kind of shape, power antenna to bring in some kind of celestial qualitative information. And intentionality is a big part of that. Oh too. Yeah, yeah, big time. And the more you bring that ritual into your life, the more you build your will and you're strengthening your astral body, basically. Like you're building your light body as you bring ritual and just awareness through your daily actions. And so, yeah, go ahead. Well, this is just why I, I sort of preach and get on my soapbox about the, the Gnostic thing sometimes and about like the samsara idea, a lot of the new age concepts that this world is fully illusion and that reject the world and all that because doing that is like also zoning out, zenning out, you could say, and no longer caring to pay attention to the things that you're talking about right now that actually lead, lead you to the enlightenment that exists in every moment. <laughs> it's, yeah, exactly. uh, it's, it's like a really big problem in the spiritual community to totally believe that reality is false or to be rejected. And, um, you know, to a degree, you can be right. The material world is illusion sort of, but I don't like that word. You could say it's generated from something else. It's not the end all be all, but that doesn't make mm -hmm. it not real. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're still here experiencing it. Like it's, there's something to it, but there's a, a more grounded, higher order system that's projecting it for us basically. Yeah, I'm with you on that and what you're speaking and what you're speaking with about, I mean Steiner would classify this, I think we touched on it lightly last time, is that it's luciferianism that what you're talking about, completely ungrounded spiritual actions, wanting to zen out all the time, talk with entities, channel this, talk with aliens over there, like whatever, you're not doing a damn thing on the earth, you're not bringing anything here. So what's the point? Blinded by the light. Well, yeah, yeah, a cold light. Wow. <laughs> uh, well, let's uh, let's see if we can work our way towards a good end point for the first hour. And, you know, if that takes more than five think, minutes, that's okay. But I know I I've think, derailed you a lot, but this is just so much fun for me. I, I'm really so, loving it. It's all good. I think if I can touch on Keely real quick, and that will just take a couple minutes, and I think... That will close the more archetypal section of this talk, and then we can branch into Electric Universe after this. That sound good? Great. Yeah, that'll All be right. an awesome second hour. All right, cool. So, Keely, me with Dale Pond at the USPA conference. I've been, I've met him twice, but this he's so Dale Pond runs the Sympathetic Vibratory Institute in Colorado. Without this man, we would not have the knowledge of John Keely. We wouldn't have a lot of stuff about Walter Russell and many other of these people I've talked about. Like, he's just been a granddaddy in the whole movement. So, I mean, Dale, gratitude for you. He's just an awesome individual. But this device in front of us, that's one of the few pieces of what I can call moral technology that I know of on the planet. This is a device called Atlan, and it was developed by John Keeley, um, the, the design, but it was built by, uh, by Dale Pond. 
So the idea is that you can only run this device when there's an operator in the room who has a coherent enough, either emotional field, bio field, something about their presence is like a laser beam for this. And it's just, or like a tuning fork for it rather. And there's this point of resonance that happens, a sympathetic vibration that is shared between you and that device. And then it starts to turn on and it operates. Um, I've been, there's like, a historical I've, precedent for that. There's inventions that only worked when their inventor was in the room where you, the inventor itself, himself or herself were the one running it and it wouldn't work for other people, couldn't be replicated for other people. Sometimes those people get idea. called like... Sometimes they get called quacks or fakes, but really there's something to it. It's uh, that's this moral technology idea is interesting. It's the spiritual technology. Exactly. And so, I mean, there's, I mean, tons of clairvoyance back in the day, they all highly respected Keeley for his like Steiner like vision, but he was also a hardcore engineer too. Tons of people tried to defraud him or whatever. And you can find those reports, make up your own mind. Um, Dale Pond's website is called svpwiki.com. Just look up svpwiki and you'll find his website. Uh, it's an amazing database for all of this information. Um, I kind of consider Etherforce like a, like a weird redheaded stepchild of, of SVP. But, um, <laughs> oh, you're not that weird. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. Maybe you are, but not, a, not in an uh, outcast way. Definitely not. <laughs> you're a beloved regular child but, but what does so this device do that we're looking at you, you want to give so, a, a little so, brief description yeah. of it visually too for anyone that didn't switch over to the video yeah so it's it's this i mean i i don't understand how, no one understands how it technically operates because no one's gotten it to operate but i will say this with all the work i've done with like biogeometry dowsing radionics and stuff like i've become highly sensitive to the what shapes emit, what devices emit. Like I could feel things pretty intensely. You walk into the room with that and it's like this cool breeze just hits you. Hair stands on the ends of your arms. Like you just feel it. Um, but it's supposed to be a generator of etheric vapor from what I understand. And so like something about the harmony of your biofield creates a sympathetic link with that and it just turns on and starts running basically and becomes like a high, you can tie it to like certain pneumatic devices for like hydraulic lifting and things like that. that. That's kind of the gist I got out of it. But all I know is that physically being in the presence of it, there's something powerful to it. Um, there's been people who've like channeled entities like through it and he's gotten messages of how to fine tune the device and things like that. But that was just one of the, one of the things Keeley did. And so Keeley, um, I guess the reason I'm bringing him up is he's another person that talks about celestial communication. He says that there's a trinity of streams that come from celestial bodies and then penetrate the earth. Um, they guide cerebral processes, gra gravity processes, magnetic processes, electrical processes, um, basically everything. Um, but they're based off of harmonics and he, he drew all these crazy diagrams and I've got the book too, of all of his diagrams, like crazy. Um, just like musical science is all I can say. No one's been able to decipher these. And so John Keeley, he's like a big, what if, and everybody's big. 
book. You know, we can see these Atlan devices. We can see a few other things, but like nothing technically works. No one can decipher his theory completely because he has all this like hidden, hidden symbolism in his charts and stuff. But, yeah, but know, like who would just make this up and try to pass it off as something real? You know, yeah, like this exactly. is so complex. He obviously put his life into this. So there's, exactly. gotta, there's something to it. Maybe you're the one that will get that device to work. I feel like you're you're Neo here. You're the one. <laughs> Maybe. And I've actually thought <laughs> I've thought about devices like Atlan and like what it actually means to turn those on. And then I started thinking about biogeometry and physical radiesthesia, like like we talked about in the last uh, last talk. And so basically, I was thinking, like, if a device like this has certain harmonic cores relating to its function, like certain keys you have to press, basically, how do you press those keys? Like in radiesthesia, they teach you how to feel colors. They They teach you how to feel the colors that are resonant with certain frequencies, basically. So... Learning how to operate these things is in learning how to feel things like radiesthesia colors and then learning how to emit that from my being in the presence of these devices and then does it just turn on? I mean, I'm just... I'm just yeah, think about sure, devices. Sure, sure that is. What about stuff that we know, like that definitely exists from materialist science where brainwave patterns are being registered and mapped and, you know, you can move something on a screen left or right by thinking hard left or right what if it's like that but the device that you're operating is the universe and it's and the operating system is feeling not just thought alone that you have to have entire body cohesion between the feeling and the thought and the intention and that's what makes a sympathetic connection to the universe which is also man but Mm -hmm. to make it actually you know play out in the physical universe it has to be playing through your whole body and not just in this disconnected compartment of your one section of your brain that you mistake for being you when really the entire apparatus of your body is what your thought and thinking and feeling could be running through. Yeah. I mean, that was very eloquently put. Yeah, exactly, man. Um, let's see. Yeah. So one other thing I just wanted to mention about Keely, even though I'm not a fan of quantum mechanics, people call him like the first quantum mechanic because he broke matter down into many, many subdivisions. I mean, technically there was a man named Gustav Le Bon who kind of predated his work a little bit, but um, technically Keeley claimed to have broken matter down to at least 70, 27 different sublevels. Each sublevel was broken down into trinities, basically kind of looking like that. Um, and so every system was bro- is managed by a system of three of these three streams coming from the cosmos, basically. And no matter how far you break things down, you're just going to get another system of three, another system of three, another system of three. But he also came up with like systems, like sets of frequencies that basically that guided, that dictate that, oh, I'm losing it. Um, Yeah, so Keeley came up with like a range of frequencies in which different levels, different subdivisions of matter existed. And in his mind, electricity and matter are one and the same thing. Matter is just congealed electricity in his mind. But you can break things down into, and the further you break things down, the more powerful you think is become, the more energy is available. And so he was about breaking matter down 
into these uh, beyond like atomic levels, like interatomic, etheric, interetheric, compound etheric, even mental levels. And he had one device, that, uh, another device that worked on sympathetic resonance. Or um, basically, he was able to either project a sound or a thought through a wire made of silver, platinum, and gold called Trexar, each one with like its own ratio of wire in there, based off of those three triune rays I, I mentioned. And those would run through a series of clay capacitors, little discs whose sizes were harmonically related to each other that would step up the energy as the energy moved up until it, it basically rang like a bell and went through another wire of Trexar into a container that would collect etheric vapor, like literally some kind of subatomic gas that was able to do incredible hydraulic work. Um, using these same principles, like he could disintegrate stone like that. He was able to liberate the etheric vapor from water. I mean, the man was able to do a lot of things and then people tried to debase him. And then at the end of his career, I heard this through a YouTube channel called Dark Journalist, which is pretty informative on, on this esoteric stuff. Yeah, I've heard of that. Yeah, uh, they're, they're, they're decent. and But it, they never give... Uh, sources though which which i don't like like they just don't tell you where they find that quote they give and that's kind of uh, frustrating but yeah. he, he alluded um that annie annie Besant, uh like the predecessor for uh of theosophy from like the person who took over theosophy from helena blavatsky and uh charles ledbeater she was responsible for the hiding of uh keely's technology I have a quote somewhere. I'm not probably not going to be able to find it, but it's Blavatsky herself, like heralding uh, Keeley's psychic abilities. But then uh, Keeley had, he kind of got Tesla in a, in a sense, like he, he had a corporation that was uh, started from under him. And then he lost control of that and lost all of his money. Most of his supplies were taken. And he, he was just like, yeah, he was just thrown to the dirt basically. Um, Man, he could do other things like supposedly like levity. He created airships that were supposedly could just levitate because they were utilizing this etheric force. I mean, all kinds of things. But he even says like our human brain. And and this is a picture of one of them. Our human brain. Oh, yeah. Stop the screen share and we'll see that closer up. Hold on. What, you're talking about him disintegrating and like reforming matter or whatever. Uh, I, I feel a little skeptical about Keeley overall, like from, from this analysis. And I know you say that that's kind of a, a generally common thing about him, but the idea, the idea that that's possible, I'm totally with like uh, the idea that any of this is possible. It's just a matter of like how we understand it or describe it. But, you know, and not the messenger even isn't the message. And we have to realize that, too. But mm. uh, going back to ancient civilizations, this type of ability to make matter malleable could account for some of the crazy stuff that we see in old architecture, where it's like they would have what we think our technology would need to do what they were doing would require like lasers and that type of scalpeling that is uh, unimaginable for that time period. But if we are if we lost the ability to use this type of harmonic technology that is uh, using ether and uh, other higher laws sort of to 
to override the lower laws of physicality is a way of putting it. That totally could explain why this was all built, but we don't even have any evidence of the tools that created it. And where did they like, you know, where's the big earth mover that we would have needed to do it? The big uh, machinery, not there. Can't find it. We just have the, just have the ruins. That's all that's left. So there's, I think that there's definitely a, an avenue of thought there that's worth pursuing that alternative and more spiritual or moral technology is responsible for a lot of the mysteries that are left over in the world from our ancient past. Yeah. I mean, there's tons hidden in like one thing with Keeley is like even Dale Pond says like, we don't have all of his work. Like Dale Pond scoured libraries. He know a ton of his work was lost. So, I mean, we're, we're picking scraps at this stuff, you know? Hmm. And, and so, I mean, we got what we have. I've been in the presence of that device. I know I felt what I felt. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, but that's as far as I can go, everything else. But um, I guess one other thing about him, like, and I've kind of been going on a tirade recently about this is like, so there's a big meme saying Tesla said, you know, the magnificent, like the secrets of the universe deal with the magnificence of three, six, nine or whatever. I'm going to put this for public record. There's not ever been one quote of Tesla saying that found even Dale Pond. He's a Tesla researcher. He can't find that. I put out a standing quote of $100 for all these Tesla researchers. No one is giving me anything. No I saw that. No one has found a damn thing. And I've been searching for years myself. But if you want to talk about three, six, and nine, study Keeley. Well, people talk about that or drop that Tesla quote like as like a pseudo intellectual thing. Like, look, you normie sheeple, you need to wake up to three, six, nine, understand it like I do. Here's the meme that proves it. It has Tesla quoting it. And it's just almost like uh, one of those, it's like virtue signaling, but it's woke signaling, but it's like fake woke. (laughs) (laughs) Super fake. Like, yeah, I mean, I'm about to get my graph, like a graphic designer for ether force. And we're going to make all kinds of, we're we're just going to blast the shit out of that. That, That's going to be done. I'll share the memes. I'm Definitely. tired. I'm tired. <laughs> but it, so if you guys want to study, understand the significance of the three, six and nine, look into Keeley's work because those triune rays that come from the celestial bodies, those are based off of harmonics, the third, sixth, and the ninth or the minor seventh. And it's a, it's a musical system. So I think that's all I'm going to say about that. So like just look into Keeley, learn what you can learn. And I mean, there's going to be a ton of people who say he's fake. You look into the Walter Russell stuff. Most of the Walter Russell people will be like, because he uses the word ether, you know, but this guy was around in the 1880s, a little before that. And yeah, I don't know. It's just a whole different way of looking at things. And it just like, and like you said, his charts, like, how does someone just come up with this stuff? Like it's coming from somewhere, you know, he's filtering something down. And even if it is purely from the realm of imagination, we find that even stuff that's like fictional stories, for example, where the person wasn't even intending to create some kind of allegory to a deeper truth. They just wrote a story. Something comes through. That's a deeper truth that if you have the eyes to see it, because everything is everything, you know, in a way. And that it's always right there in front of us. It's just a matter of increasing our level of sensitivity. And if you're someone that's 
heavily engaged in creating, unless you just have a really evil and twisted intention. And even if you do, sometimes you'll still get, you'll always get stuff coming through that's from spirit and not from ego because of the process of engaging the imagination required to create and consistently create and the ritual of that. And there's a lot here, man. This has been a crazy first hour. I felt like we, that, that, that felt like two hours in one, <laughs> but we've got more people. So uh, after I'm going to give John a, a chance to remind people all the ways that they can get involved with ether force and connect with him. But uh, b- before that, I also want to let you all know that the second hour of this conversation is available at patreon.com slash interverse and takes $5 a month to get access, but that's a small price to pay for these amazing episode extensions. And I know that the second hour, we're just going to build off of what we talked about in the first hour. And uh, John's talked to me before we started about how this is going to involve the electric universe and uh, looking at and trying to understand the true nature of light and color uh, as best we can. So really excited for that. John, you want to wrap up for the the free people? Yeah. uh, Yeah. So um, I run this website. uh, It's known as Ether Force Sound Energy. I'm going to do a screen share real quick. So everyone can see it. So we're a movement, an educational movement, continuing the legacy of the Borderlands Research Journal. Um, There is a possibility I might actually be acquiring that official name within the next year. But we have the former leaders of that movement who have our backs. But we're here to release all this kind of information and the hidden sciences pertaining to the to the, the vital forces, the things that make us alive, the things that make the universe living and breathing, and how the atomistic, materialistic, point-like particle interpretations of standard science just cannot explain what we experience as human beings. So the next hour, we're going to talk about the electrical universe. So I hope you enjoyed this introductory chat on the nature of stars. I definitely enjoyed it. <laughs> that was super fun. All right, guys, uh, make sure that you catch us on the second hour if you, you want to do that because you should. It'll be great. All right. <laughs>